Uh, I still get freaked out by seeing my books in the wild. Yeah, it, it is scary. Uh, yeah, I imagine it must be quite strange to like be walking around and uh, you know seeing a, a book that you wrote on a shelf, your own, the couch in our studio, and just be like, ah, <laughs> oh, fuck, I hope I didn't leave a spelling mistake. <laughs> no, legit, I'm completely terrified that I got something wrong the entire time. Uh, like I was just going through it this morning before, before chatting because I hadn't read it in a long time. And uh, basically, like, I was just checking little facts, being like, did I get that wrong? Like, was the condition of the working class in England really about Manchester? Engels was writing about Manchester, right? And you're like, I know this, but just freak yourself out. Sorry, Callum, uh, this is a dream. And actually, you have to redo your entire book because yeah. the printer lost the proofs and you have to handwrite the whole thing. Better not make any mistakes. No, don't do also, that. you're not wearing pants. Yeah. I can't spell as well, so I would just be fucked in so many ways. Ah, uh, yes. So you became a writer. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Yes, Sorry to excellent. all my editors. Yes, that's like uh, Giles Corrin becoming a writer. <laughs> I would hope that I'm better than Giles Corrin, but we never know. I don't know. Maybe you could, hey, pop in one of your alts, but forget to log into the alt and then uh, make fun of some of your favorite podcasters. We'll see if you're <laughs> Giles Corrin. <laughs> So I'm here with Callum Kant, the author of a book, Riding for Deliveroo, which is out now on Polity Press. You should buy it directly from the publisher. Um, and Riding for Deliveroo is all about, well, the subtitle, Resistance in the New Economy. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it today, and one of the reasons I wanted to have Callum here to talk about his book, is that we see from the great and good of the left and the Labour Party in general, we see Rebecca Long Bailey talking about it in Guardian and Tribute articles. We see Clive Lewis um, you know, making of excited speeches about it. We, we see Alex Sobel tweeting from his Twitter account that every Labour MP's office should become a constituency surgery and start solving problems and intervening in people's lives and so on and so forth because we recognized as a movement that we need to rebuild the social base of the Labour Party. What we did with Corbynism, which is an alliance of um, sort of, of long-time energized, long-time Labour voters with younger, urban, energized Labour voters didn't get us over the line electorally because it didn't have that basis in people's lives. People didn't trust us. And one of the reasons I, one of the reasons I like this book so much is that it is the story of how you create a specifically working class movement of people who are precarious, who are governed by an algorithm, and who effectively have no rights that they can fall back on given to them by the state. If we want to rebuild the Labour Party, and we want to rebuild the social base of the Labour Party, we could do worse than trying to learn or even overlearn some of the lessons that Callum writes about in Riding for Deliveroo. That's why I've had you here today. Oh, that's very kind. Um, yeah, I think actually, unfortunately, I mean, this book was written um, well before uh, the election campaign, but in the, in the aftermath of the defeat, I've, I've come back to it and, and seen a lot of it. It's unfortunately, yeah, very relevant. A lot of this stuff about how do we actually community organise? How do we base build? How do we organize workers? Um, sadly, you know, predicted a bit of it. Ah, <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> okay, just like we, like we've agreed to do. We have to stop using the lathe of heaven for evil. <laughs> and one of the most important things about building social bases like this from strike actions, from, from worker organizing, is that you're not, wait, you're not creating a social movement to get you elected in four years so you can do something good for the people who are working. It's the people who are working, doing something good for themselves, and then all of those victories in, in the workplace, and all of those work, work victories socially, 
those create not only create bonds between people, but those build up and build up and build up. And then the political process and the process of electing a socialist government becomes more about ratifying what already exists than trying to get people to take the modernist leap on faith alone. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to jump right into sort of some of the things that you've written. Um, this is from the beginning of the book. Militant research into food platforms matters for two reasons. And also, I'd like you to explain what militant research means when I'm done reading this paragraph. First, the segment of the capitalist class that owns these platforms have been early adopters of algorithmic management technology, which has transformed the labor process of traditional food delivery, and I would argue, Riley, other things as well, through the automation of supervision. Second, platform workers have resisted the conditions created by this reorganization of the labor process leading to a widespread series of skirmishes between workers and bosses. So, as a matter of table setting, you explain militant research and what that is, and why the conditions of this industry are ripe for both militant research and organizing, such that we can think about what it might mean to create a social base. So, what is militant research? Well, I, I use a method in the book called Workers' Inquiry. Right. Now, Workers' Inquiry comes from a questionnaire. The name comes from a questionnaire that Marx wrote in 1880, where he basically wanted to talk to French workers about conditions in their workplaces. Um, and he, he talks about um, how the class to whom the future belongs, um, which is what he calls the working class, how they have the best understanding of what the circumstances of capitalism actually are. And he kind of asks these strategic questions about you know, how much you paid, how much is the rent, have there been strikes in your workplace? with the intention of discovering from the working class perspective what the reality of capitalism in France was like at the time. Now, this um, has been picked up as a tradition by different groups kind of over the history of, of Marxist thought. You have the Johnson Forest tendency in the US, you have operaismo, you know, workerism in Italy, um, often through like the 50s, 60s. People who pick up this methodology and start to use kind of sociological methods in order to investigate the workplace but not in some like abstract way that we just want to understand what you know is going on. We want to understand things strategically. So we want to see the workplace as like a place of class struggle. We want to understand what side is doing what. We want to understand what you know resources we've got, what resources they've got, and how we can you know build a workers' movement that can actually smash them. So it's this very much the notion here is not of disinterested social science research. It's very much of a cooperative process where um, academics, researchers, intellectuals can cooperate with the workers' movement in order to better understand like, what our strategy should be going forward. And that's very much the tradition of this book, is that you know, it's not um, abstractly written for you know, academic verification. It's more about uh, talking to workers about what conditions are like in their industry, if they work in food platforms, but also just generally what it's like to be a worker um, in 21st century Britain and what we can do in order to improve our lot and to build a movement that can really fuck up the bourgeoisie, basically. Indeed. So, And then the, sort of the, leading on from part two of that, we, you also sort of would say that Deliveroo or the platform, that like people on the sharp end of the platform industry, essentially, um, these are also people, this is also a, an industry that is probably the most worth doing a workers' inquiry into. Mm. So uh, what I use, so if workers' inquiry is kind of the methodology, the, the theory behind um, the book is uh, broadly something called class composition, right? Which is a way of understanding um, how in rapidly changing periods, um, what's actually going on at the base of society changes what is expressed politically. Um, so there's these broad ideas, you know, technical composition being like how is work organised. So the technical class composition of platform capitalism is quite unique in many ways. Um, so basically, in this sector, you can see new organisations of capital for the production of value. So there's a lot of things being trialled here in terms of 
algorithmic management in particular, um, which are kind of new strategies. Um, and I, I draw the analogy in the book between um, Boston textile mills. So if you went back into you know the uh, 19th century and you went to a Boston textile mill, you could see the very first assembly lines. And then if you understood, if you'd taken that chance um, in Boston at the time to understand how that workflow process was going, where basically the pace of work is set by machines, not by people, um, then you would have had strategic knowledge that you could then apply when the Ford plants start working on this stuff in Detroit, for instance, uh, 40 years later. So I view platform capitalism as one of these sectors where if we investigate what's going on in terms of algorithmic management in places like Deliveroo, but also you know Amazon warehouses, there's plenty of places where this applies. Algorithmic management is increasingly going to become important across the rest of the economy because actually what it allows capital to do is just automate supervisory labor. Like supervisory labor doesn't really produce value. Like people who are like foremen or whatever, um, basically their job is to make sure that workers produce more value and are exploited more efficiently. Uh, and if you can automate them, then you're not getting rid of like value producing labor um, and capital has a huge incentive to do so. So I think increasingly what we're starting to see is whether it's um, scheduling, so like Walmart in the US now does all of its scheduling via algorithm, um, or whether it is like you should take this order from this restaurant to this house in the form of Deliveroo, this kind of um, supervisory labor is now being done by machines, by algorithms. And it's very important we understand that because it, it, it potentially transforms the way in which we need to organize in the workplace. Well, I think if we want to talk about transformation, I think that there have been a number of developments that have happened over the last 60 years. Um, that have transformed our society into one that's profoundly more isolated. And these concepts of, of, of sort of algorithmic management, the black box, and the automation of supervision, we're going to get into sort of as this, as this discussion progresses. But one of the things I want to start with, because I want to then, I want to go through this idea that we, that we have been shattered, essentially, as a, as a society. Um, and partly it is algorithms that are doing this. It's partly cars. It's partly neoliberalism. It's partly the shattering of unions these these social bonds all crumble into dust you know all that is solid etc cetera, etc cetera. um and deliver and deliveroo both as a worker and as a customer is a profoundly isolating experience because if you are going to because it, it, you could either cook a you could either cook a meal for family and friends or or you could go to a restaurant with family with with someone else uh you could deal with a server you could sit near other people at a table and so on and so on. It might not be an environment that is ideally tuned to your individual preferences where you get the cuisine you want, maybe the other person there with you gets the cuisine they want, and you don't have to see anyone you're not already connected to. It is, but that, that those, those bonds are what create social bases. That those bonds are what society is. The more we let the, um, these things, these processes happen, whether that's the process of algorithmic management of everything to do with what we eat or the processes of destroying public transport and walking routes to produce larger and larger motorways so people can go further and further by car and have to see fewer and fewer people are going to become a more atomized and isolated society and we will become more neoliberal as individuals because we will become more individual so i want to uh, read from your, your words again. The ongoing epidemic of social loneliness and isolation stoked by the anti-collectivism of the last four decades has made many people incredibly vulnerable to the confusions of common sense. You only have to think of the wildfire spread of, rumor, of rumors, some begun by fascists, that Corbyn condemned the police for shooting dead the London Bridge terrorists, or that the photo of the child lying on the floor in a hospital in Leeds was a setup to see how huge sections of the electorate were convinced of rumors that influenced them to act in ways that were diametrically opposed to material interests. 
and people's everyday lives are lived in a state of constant alienation and isolation, then you can dismantle, uh, you can dominate them by dominating their media system. And this is exactly what the Tory party managed to do. And this is a connection that you and I previously in conversation have drawn, is the isolation of people by algorithms, cars, and so on, and they're, they're the loss of things like unions, and then their ability to be made to mistrust one another and become pessimistic about the future. Yeah. So uh, that quotes from an article called Understanding Our Defeat, uh, on notes and below, where I, I tried to understand what had happened in the general election. And I think this thing about social isolation is, is a profound point because there are so many metrics to, to look at this, whether it be the average distance traveled to work, um, the breakup of occupational communities, uh, epidemics of loneliness, not only among the elderly, but also amongst the, amongst the young. There's a, a profound shift has occurred in British society and indeed in much of the global north where people do live um, highly stressful, highly anxious, highly depressing lives now, right? And I think the delivery is one of the symptoms of this because you look at the marketing of this company and basically you'd say that, you know, you're getting delivery, you know, you're getting food delivered to you because you want to have some kind of like exquisite urban consumption experience, uh, but you oh, want to do God. it, God. but you want to do it in oh, like just hearing that fucking <laughs> phrase, but you want I'm to do sure, it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you finish, but I'm sure that was on a fucking PowerPoint. I, I hope so. Oh. <laughs> so you want, you want restaurant quality food in your home because you want some kind of like notion of choice or whatever. And this is, you're really, you're not getting a takeaway. You're getting something that's like higher social capital. But in fact, when you do, the, do this work and you see who you're delivering to, you're delivering to the hungover, the depressed, single parents. You know, it's basically just like a high social capital way of doing very, very cheap food delivery. And people are using this to solve their own crises of reproduction. They're using it because they don't have any food in the fridge and they're too depressed to go out the house or whatever. But it's sold as if this is like a luxury experience that you really want. So it's a way of telling yourself, actually, I'm not you know, really struggling to get on here. I'm having a treat, right? And that, that profoundly is a, is a marketing strategy, which has actually worked really well because it builds on, you know, Mark Fisher has this idea of responsabilization, right? Where uh, people basically think that everything that goes wrong in their life is their own fault. That's it. largely, you know, most British workers believe this, um, unfortunately. Mm. And so people who are getting into these crises where they, they are struggling to look after themselves, if it's because they're overworking or whatever, um, they want some way of being told that actually, you know, you're not in a crisis, you're okay. Because mm. to admit that you're in a crisis is to admit that you fucked up, that you failed, because there's no possible collective cause for why you're working 60 hours a week and completely exhausted that has to be a you know a personal problem mm. so delivery really capitalizes on this and in, in many ways it's it's commodifying this experience of urban social isolation and it, it really is a depressing reality that most young people who use the service are not using it out of you know it's not a good thing people don't use this you know when i've used delivery and i have done i you know i don't encourage people to boycott it it's when i'm just like fucking hung over because i was depressed and i got really drunk on a friday night and i didn't need to but you know and then stuck, barely able to look after myself on the weekend. Mm. And it's providing this kind of like care service in a way. And this is, whilst a deeply depressing indictment of what contemporary social life is like, it's also, I think, gives us an avenue to think about how it might be repurposed, right? Well, because cooking is essentially, a lot of what you can think of as cooking as is, is care labor. Yeah. I mean, you are, you, it is, you're not producing some, some sort of larger value. You're, or you're, not produce, you're not producing a car, you're not produ you are producing a larger value, but you're not producing a thing. There's a use value for yeah. your family rather than exchange value for the market, right? Yeah. yeah. And so you, and I think that, that Deliveroo itself has, has, has isolated and distanced every single, and, and broken apart every single element of this chain where 
instead uh even in, instead of either being at being at home and having and having someone even making pasta for yourself for example or someone else where you you have that the relationship with them you have that you have the conversation together not just about what ingredients you prefer or or not prefer but you also get to choose to have that social interaction and you have this the experience of working with and and cooperating with and loving or liking or disliking whatever someone else or if you're in a restaurant you have the experience of maybe empathizing with the waiter you have the experience of saying something nice to the chef restaurants are meant to be nice to go to as well this mm. is the thing i never like un until i started thinking about delivery as basically a care service i didn't understand really the use case for it because i was like why would people not want to go to a restaurant that's like a special experience that's something you look forward to like you're meant to enjoy that Mm -hmm. But but then when you think that in fact you know people are using this service because they're in a, in a crisis, then it you know makes mm -hmm. a bit more sense. But the the rationale for it doesn't really make sense at the level of of their own advertising. Well, I mean, because this is this is this is not um this is not unexpected because the whole platform or gig economy advertises itself as for the middle class, uh, both on both ends. It's uh, for middle class people to have a middle class bit of middle class enjoyment at a relatively reasonable price. So hey, you can have a restaurant meal, but without getting a babysitter for the kids, without you know, getting yourself over to the place, whatever. Um, and also, hey, you're a middle class per you're a middle class busy person, but why don't, don't you want to earn a fifty pounds from just having a nice bike ride for a day? Don't you love that? Like that's what the, all the marketing for Uber was, which was you have a car, why not have it make money for you? And these things were never advertised or never sold as livelihoods. They were sold as ways of marrying up your individual desires to have a bike ride or go for a drive with someone else's individual desires to uh, be driven somewhere or have uh, food delivered to them on a bicycle. And this advertising and marketing campaign by the platform economy as lifestyle for everyone completely elides the fact that what it actually is doing is exacerbating uh, isolation and exploitation sort of w at hyperspeed in both cases. Because who actually ends up doing these jobs, right? Like who is the workforce? Well, what I found when I was working for Deliveroo was that basically you get like the urban surplus population. So people who either through language skills can't get jobs elsewhere or they're just pushed out of the labor market because they, you know, they need flexibility because they've got care needs or something. Like people who end up in this job basically end up there because for some other reason they can't fit into a less exploitative part of the economy. Um, and then when you end up there, you are then just worked relentlessly. And yes, there are, there's a segment of the workforce, you know, often on, on bikes, often younger, often university educated, who are temporarily there, who are, you know, they're going to be exploited, but this isn't their long-term, um, not, they're not going to work here in a really long-term sense, and they're not going to work more than kind of like 20 hours a week or something. For a start, it's very hard to work on a bike for that many hours a week. Like you have to be really, really fit to be like a proper full-time cycle courier is very physically demanding, and almost none of the workers who you know just show up um, to try and work for delivery are capable of it. But then you have this group often who invest in a moped, who are like long-term committed to the job, who are trying to look after families, who will literally they will work as long as they need to in order to get the money they need to survive to pay rent and the rest of it. They're often migrant workers, often older, and you know you will see them doing 70, 80 hour weeks where they are just consistently, they will go out and they will work for four pound a drop or whatever until they've made the amount of money. And if there's no work, they're going to stay out there, right? And they're going to stay out there in the cold. They're going to stay out there in the rain. Um, and these are the people who do the backbone of the deliveries. Like they do about 80% of the work for these companies. 
So actually, whilst they might advertise to you as, you know, it's, uh, it wasn't actually my decision necessarily to have a cyclist on the cover of the book, but um, there is this notion of people using this as flexible labor, as part-time labor, as it being like highly um, provisional not being something they rely on, there's actually a urban surplus population who is working these things consistently over time, um, who are exposed to all the risks, who are hyper exploited, and they make up the the they do the vast bulk of the work. Mm. And I I mean we're sort of we're jumping around a little a little bit in the in the notes, but that's completely fine because I I'd rather this follow this was organic than just follow a strict pattern. We we sort of noted that sort of you you actually also, you didn't just research this passively. You didn't go and just and sort of canvas um, different Deliveroo riders, sort of what, what they were doing and what this was like. You became a Deliveroo rider for quite some time. And the experience that you relate in the book is one of, um, of, of, conf- of sort of a combination of incredulity at the sort of casualness with which Deliveroo treats its, its staff. So you're training consisted of one person who'd been working for 10 minutes longer than you or whatever coming and like looking to see that your bike had two tires uh, and that you knew how to use the app and then saying well that concludes your training goodbye forever and then you were just told to go and wait in a square in brighton um with other bicycle couriers and moped couriers as you say and then just there's a little ding you get told there's an order you go pick it up drop it off at the place you're supposed to drop it off at then go back to the designated waiting area and that this is just sort of and what the sense i get from the from reading the book is that this is a very boring but very anxiety inducing situation because you're not allowed to do anything else but you're hyper focused on your phone because you need it to beep yeah no the anxiety is absolutely a part of the working experience and it was something i really wasn't expecting um so you know when i got the job there i, I didn't i don't know what I was really thinking this would be like, but I have honestly never been so stressed in a job before. And I've worked in like high pressure uh, hotel kitchens where like chefs are shouting at you all the time. That was significantly less stressful than working for Deliveroo because there is this thing. So there's a number of different causes of pressure. The first of which is the fact that there is no guaranteed wage. Like you're, mm. I was on a pure piece rate, so I only got paid four pounds of delivery. If there were no deliveries, I made zero pounds an hour. Right, and you're sitting there. I love that flexibility. That's fantastic. You could have gone off and done anything else inside the designated waiting area. (laughs) Yeah, as long as you're ready to jump on your bike at the first notice and immediately start working, you could do whatever you want. And so long as you don't care about paying rent or eating, exactly. Which like millennials don't care about that. Yeah, and riding a bike is notoriously low calorie, uh, so you don't need to eat. (laughs) Um, So I I basically would be waiting in these. uh, They were called zone centers. These waiting areas, Um, and you would be, you know, for a start, just worried about there not being enough orders that evening. So usually I'd start an evening shift like five, six o'clock, and there's that bit before people really start ordering for dinner, where you are just waiting, and you might do one delivery that hour, so it's four pounds that first hour, and then it starts picking up. But then even when it picks up, and you're not anxious about there not being any work, you then realise that you know in order to make that four pound hour up to eight pounds, I need to make 12 pounds the next hour. You know, you, you, need, you need to average everything out. So the bad hours need to be matched with good hours, which means when there is busyness over those like short periods, so say seven to nine, you need to go really, really, really fast. So you can get as many orders done in, in that period whilst there is high demand to average everything back up, which then pushes you to just ride faster and faster and faster on the roads. And, yeah. you know, I ended up in like screaming arguments with other road users, which is not something I've ever done, right? I'm not a road rage person. But I would end up, you know, someone would just come and scream at me because I jumped the lights because I want to get out 15 seconds quicker. 
right? Like there's all these kind of um, highly stressful interactions and the risk of just getting knocked off your bike by a taxi or by a bus because you're diving through traffic to try and get there quicker and quicker and quicker. So there's multiple sources of risk and stress here. And if Deliveroo did not automate the supervisory role, but had a person that was telling you, if they didn't automate that supervisory role, if instead they had an individual human being who was telling you to act in this way, that individual human being would have to be a fucking sociopath. Yeah, yeah. They would have to say, they would have to say, we are not, we're going to pay you four pounds for this hour. We're, go- we're going to pay you your full wage if you engage in a lot of this unsafe behavior. Yeah. Basically, if and we are, and we are going to, we are going to make you work for not an hour. We are then going to make you work frantically because we need you to work now. We're going to basically shred the social contract that the employer owes the employee anything but the um, um, tiniest fraction of the wage for the smallest amount of the of the time where they are actually delivering the value. Um, yeah, it's it's. I think like algorithmic management in this way, this this black box, must be so stressful because it's like being managed by someone who doesn't care if you live or die. Yeah, and there's, and there's no capacity for negotiation built in. There's no capacity for compromise. There's no relationship. Yeah, exactly. So if you have a human supervisor, they will always, you know, there might be the letter of the law, but they're not going to follow it, right? They, you know, they aren't going to be a complete bastard, basically, because you have this like human interaction. They understand in order to manage you, they have to give concessions because it's a human relationship. So, uh, you know, with the exception of like extremely aggressive um, supervisors, most of the time you get a bit of leniency on the key things you want to get leniency on. But this app has literally no capacity for that. Like the app cannot respond to any of your demands. I think this is one of the dynamics that produces class conflict in these platforms is the fact that there is no latitude built in for, you know, there's no wiggle room, right? So if you're pissed off, they can't, you know, detect it for a start. The app can't tell that the workforce is getting increasingly angry about conditions. But then additionally, it can't build in like small margins so that, you know, maybe we'll just pay you a bit more this hour. or Maybe we'll just be a bit softer on you for the next couple of weeks Mm -hmm. so you get less pissed off. And basically, this means that for workers, you know, you either fight or you give in. There's, there's no, you know, middle way. There's no compromise here, which turns it into a very, very confrontational workplace in terms of the power dynamics. Because basically, you fight or you're fucked. Mm-hmm. There's no other choice, right? So, uh, on building on that idea of you fight or you're fucked, um, I want to talk about the the system of control created that, that Deliveroo imposes on its workers versus the forms of resistance that you began to cultivate among, amongst yourselves and amongst one another that eventually led to the widespread wave of strike action by Deliveroo drivers. It's very just emotionally satisfying to read about. <laughs> because they, that's the, before I get into this, right? These, these just tech bro douchebags, yeah. complete just blithe shitheads who have no idea what they're actually, who, who are able to make money despite being both venal and stupid, um, have... They, I think they genuinely believe that they're making the world a better place. They think they're the good guy. And it's also remarkable, particularly with Deliveroo, the way it's like actually intertwined with the real, real bastards of our society. So there's a guy, Robert Oxley, who used to do the press for Deliveroo, who now is actually press advisor for Boris Johnson, right? So like there is a revolving door where so many of these senior um, members of staff at Deliveroo are like tightly, tightly entwined with the Tory party. So it's not even, these are not just like, liberal tech dude bros they are actually full-on they're just capitalist reaction it's a myth it's yeah. the the idea of the like they are only liberal in the sense that they like the free market <laughs> yeah. they, they are they are as we would understand them to be liberal yeah they are yeah. not as the times would understand them to be liberal yeah yeah or maybe they are as the times would understand them to be liberal because they like 
you know, will march in the um, Lloyd's Bank Presents Pride Parade. Um, but regardless, I want to talk about a, a bit about the systems of control and resistance that we, that we look at. The algorithmic management is a system of control, and it's something that we've talked about a lot. And I think it's worth going directly into your definition of it. Okay. So, I mean, this really comes from, um, there's, there's a problem for a capitalist when they buy labor, right? So say you buy, um, you've, you've got, I don't know, 50,000 pounds to start a business. Say you, it's a potato peeling business. You buy 25,000 pounds worth of potatoes, right? You buy some potato peelers and then you buy some human beings to peel the potatoes, right? Now, two of those um, are, you know, the means of production, the potato peelers and the material of production, the potatoes, they will just do what they're told, right? They don't have any capacity to, for response. They are determinate, you know, potatoes cannot, they're just going to be potatoes, right? Whereas the labor power, you actually need to do something to convert that labor power into value, right? You need to harness that because there's the potential for refusal constantly. Like those workers could work really, really hard and make you loads and loads of money, or they could do fuck all and make you no money. So for the capitalist, there's always this problem of turning the potential of value that's in labor power, that's in variable capital, into actually realized value. And in order to turn you know, labor power into value, you need to have a system for making people work. You need to make them both work efficiently on the labor process so that they're doing the most they can in their time and also intensely in the work process so that they're not you know, slacking off, basically. So part of what a system of control, it's a, a phrase from a guy called Edwards does, is it has a way of turning that indeterminate labor power into determined value. It's all about that conversion process, right? Now, there are many different ways of organizing systems of control. Every job kind of has one. Um, but with something like Deliveroo, you have a recomposed one because they're using different forms of technology to make that conversion of labor power into profit, right? So particularly, um, so when we talk about black box apps, they're called black boxes because you don't see what um, actually goes on inside them. You don't see the calculation process. You just see the inputs and the outputs. So you know that you know orders are coming in and the output is you're getting told to go here and do, do X, Y, Z. Now, that system of control is actually dominated by an algorithm in a way that previously it might have been humanly planned. And that transition for me is really interesting because it's, it has the potential to increase efficiency and intensity on the side of you know, looking at it from the perspective of a capitalist. But also for workers, it makes life really hard. So you can look um, not only in something like a food platform, but you can also look at Amazon and how Amazon warehouse workers are worked to the absolute bone. A lot of that, you have a similar thing of like you're just told order to order on the basis of an algorithmic determination. Now, these systems of control are fundamentally different from what you experience in other jobs. I think for us as the left, we really need to get a handle on what it's like to be a hyper-exploited worker under conditions of algorithmic management, because increasingly the working class in this country and the working class across the global north is going to be governed by these kind of systems. Mm. And that experience of like brutal, intense work that exhausts you physically in the manner of factory work um, historically is going to become a wider and wider reality. Mm. And we need to get grips to that and we need to work out how we build a movement with those workers to resist that domination, to fight those algorithms, and also in the obviously the longer scale, to have a political struggle over how we actually organize our economy. Yeah, because, I mean, it's, I, I think there, is, there, is, there are also some, some assumptions that go into these sort of black boxes, right? Which is that the black boxes are these very clever things that are made by very clever people that you couldn't possibly understand. Mm. And the, I think the, in the case of something like, you know, Amazon, this might be right. Um, or not, you couldn't possibly understand, but that it is genuinely complex. But that most of these algorithmic management apps, whether it's you know TaskRabbit or um, uh, Deliveroo or whatever, are essentially a few lines of JavaScript and then some rented rack space at Amazon Web Servers. Yeah, it's not complicated. 
Yeah, it, it's just a traveling salesman problem, right? Yeah. If people know uh, the maths, on, uh, there's a type of problem called a traveling salesman problem, which is like, how do you most efficiently go around to distribute a network, basically? Mm. Um, so yes, it just it's some tech workers have designed a solution to this. It's not actually remarkably complex, but the black box operates very effectively. And here is something that I actually missed when I was working at Deliveroo to separate different kinds of workers, right? So the street worker, the delivery worker, the courier, um, has this conception that the black box is not really created by another worker. It's not the product of another worker. It's just an instrument of the bosses, right? But when you actually look, there are tech workers who are producing, you know, th their job is to build these management machines, right? And there is a potential for solidarity, should they actually be organized together, between the people designing these. Because, you know, Will Shu, uh, who's the CEO of Deliveroo, is not very nice in the office. You know, it's not like they are on perfect conditions. A lot of white-collar workers are also highly exploited. Um, and there's a potential for solidarity there, which industrially could be very powerful um, between the people who are building the apps and operating the apps and the people who are, you know, actually doing what they're told by the black box at, mm -hmm. at the bottom end. And that potential for solidarity is obscured by the black box, which appears as like this kind of wall between these two, the office workers and the street workers. And what we need to think about, I think, going forward in, in these kind of technical workplaces about recomposing that solidarity and, and building those links between workers who are doing this stuff and people who are building the systems that govern them. Well, it, this is also part of the one of the great victories um, of, uh, for, of, of, of Thatcher and her descendants and sort of the ongoing um, uh, sort of fabrica fabricated, um, fabricated outrage brigade on the right is this idea that um, white collar workers aren't working class mm. there. Uh, and so the idea, so it's, oh, it's, a, it's, so it's like, oh, you, you white collar worker, you, you dare want better conditions. You're not working class. Oh, you working class person, you dare want, but there, there is always a way to separate these people, not just with black boxes, but rhetorically as well. And sort of in, in the cultural imagination as the only people who are authentically working class are people who are in their fifties and sixties, who may have had a union job in the 1970s, who are now retired and don't live in a big city and are white. And, and this is where fundamentally, like the Marxist take on this stuff is absolutely integral to actually understanding what's going on because class is a social relation, right? It's not a concrete thing. Like working in a particular kind of job, like, you know, a manual job, that is not what defines class, right? What defines class is a social relation of exploitation where capital is using you to produce value for itself, right? And, and fundamentally, we've got to understand that. And because it's a social relation, the concrete forms that social relation takes shift over time. So the working class today is composed very, very differently to the historic working class. Far fewer manufacturing workers, for mm. instance. You know, if you look at major manufacturing in London now, you're mostly talking about hummus. Like yeah. stuff like hummus and pre-filled sandwiches are a really huge part of the manufacturing sector in London. Whereas if you looked historically, it'd be very different. Mm -hmm. But that changing- but They're all middle class because they live in a city. They're urban elites. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're actually, uh, I mean, most of the time, incredibly badly off, incredibly exploited um, migrant workers. But we've got to think about class in this kind of like moving way. So, I mean, I, I don't want to talk too much about the debates on class within the Labour Party because it's, it's mildly boring and depressing. But there is this thing of like people assuming that class is a static set of like, um, you know, I don't like frothy coffee, right? Whereas actually fundamentally as Marxists, we've got to say, you know, class is a social relation. We've got mm. to get over all the nonsense about that. And, and so one of the ways in which the sort of like the, there are people who are um, working, working at Deliveroo. Now, in this case, the, the solidarity that was built within, um, Within sort of delivery workers in multiple um, cities across, not just not just in where in your case in Brighton, but across the UK and in Europe as well, um, there was this change, as you say, from looking at the technical composition of the workplace to the political composition of the workplace. There was the growth 
of class consciousness among not just different, among unfortunately different categories of road worker. We didn't extend that up to the white collar workers yet, but that's going to have to be part of the project. There was this growth of, 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 of class composition as people began to communicate with one another outside the prescribed methods of never talking to each other, waiting for the black box, saying, here you go to the, to the, to the customer, and then going back and waiting silently. This didn't, it didn't go as Deliveroo planned because fundamentally they are stupid. <laughs> yeah, basically. So now, obviously, when they told you to wait in these zone centers, they'd be like, oh, you've all got to wait. For us, it was a, a place called Jubilee Square, which is like a little square with like a yo sushi and a few other restaurants around it. And basically, it was like a big place where they could put 30 odd cyclists. And then as all this came sure, in. Of course, they also paid uh, the city for using all. Their, oh, of course. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> um, where you could then be sent out on very short notice to do deliveries quickly. Basically, you need a load of surplus labor for these systems because they're very like they have to be very responsive to demand. So you need someone to pool all that surplus labor. Uh, and for us, it was this, this place called Jubilee Square. But what they didn't really think about is that obviously when you're, you're standing there, you all talk to each other. Right. So particularly if it's bad and there's not many deliveries, you all end up waiting in the cold, stood around. And because, you know, lots of people are trying to work, but there isn't very much work, more and more of you are all being sent to the same place. So you'd log on um, and you'd go, you know, I'm going to go and wait for orders. You'd ride down to the zone center to Jubilee Square. You'd arrive there and there'd already be 30 other workers. You can see straight away that no one's getting paid a good rate tonight. And then immediately the first discussion is, oh, you haven't had anything either. How many orders have you done tonight? What's your hourly wage? How are things going for you? How are you finding the job? And because there's this automated supervision doesn't actually have any way of like watching people having conversations. Like they only automated the distribution of work. They didn't actually automate, you know, the kind of everyday repression. Say that, they'll listen. (laughs) But they didn't actually automate the repression of workers. So when you had 30 workers in a group, you could have, you know, impromptu union meetings is what it turned into because people would just chat to each other. And so my illusion when I started the job was that workers really were going to be completely isolated. But in fact, People had already started self-organizing. So there were WhatsApp groups, um, for instance, which basically functioned um, not only for, you know, not initially for union organizing at all. These were primarily ways of, you know, talking about, does anyone have a spare pump? Does anyone have any lights I can borrow? Does anyone have any batteries? Um, How's it looking tonight? Is it busy? Does anyone want to play five-a-side football? Here's a funny meme, like all this kind of stuff, right? They were just social channels that were generated on the basis of you met in person in restaurant kitchens and at the zone center. And then you got added into them. And these really large WhatsApp groups are fascinating because basically uh, there's an idea of the informal work group, right? Um, Where in every workplace, workers who cooperate with one another, who work in very similar conditions, start to form social bonds. They have like informal leaders and they, you know, form these cooperative relations of solidarity. Now that solidarity can be the embryo of unionization, can be the embryo of collective worker self-organization for their own material interests. And this was exactly what started happening at Deliveroo because as conditions got worse and worse, and we're talking about, uh, I think, 2016, like the, the winter of 2016, we were getting, we were earning less and less. You'd go out for a dinner shift and you'd do four pounds an hour for like three hours and be like, fuck this, I'm going home. Like there is no way I'm staying out here. So you've done, you've got paid 12 pounds for three hours work and you're freezing cold, right? Like, and you've just wasted an entire evening. People start to get really angry about this. And because we were constantly meeting and chatting, um, it was possible for us to organize. And so these WhatsApp groups then went from being kind of just chatting things where you set up football games into like, how are we going to organize? What are we going to do? Shall we go on strike? And as soon as the idea of a strike emerged, it caught like wildfire. And these WhatsApp groups transitioned from just chatting groups into a strike network, right? 
Now that transition actually occurred in Brighton um, in the January. So I had been slogging my guts out trying to organise there. Um, we'd produced something called the Rebel Rue, which was basically a, a, a two-sided A4 bulletin. I, I really enjoy uh, the Rebel Rue just because what you've done here is, uh, I, I hate to interrupt, but I, I want to bring this to the fore, which is that the way that Deliveroo communicated with its employees was quite infantilizing. And that there is this big trend of, um, uh, of, of uh, not just within the sort of uh, the communications of, of, of bosses to workers, especially in the gig economy, but broadly speaking, culturally, there is this, um, oh, you're a little, you're a little good boy, aren't you? Um, of just baby talk from yeah. all of the sort of the great and good, the brilliant of the economy. And they're talking like this to guys with, with fucking kids. <laughs> <laughs> they're because you say here in your book, Deliveroo love calling us ruse in their emails. So there was nice irony in turning their patronizing nickname back on them. You're calling a guy with four kids a fucking rue. Yeah. How do you expect him not to strike? <laughs> yeah, well, if it's a middle-aged man who, like, you know, is a moped rider working 80 hours a week supporting his family, and not only that, you know, he's constantly in fear of losing his moped, having a crash which leaves him injured with no support because, you know, they're not going to pay for you when you're off sick. Um, he's constantly in fear of theft, so carries around like a literal weapon with him all the time because if he loses his moped, he loses his capacity to work. You know, these are people who are really on the sharp end of what it's like to be, you know, a worker in Britain today and are really struggling in many cases to actually reach like subsistence wages where they can actually survive and reproduce themselves and their families. And then, yeah, precisely, there is this patronizing thing of like, oh, you're a roo. You know, you're enjoying this. You're having fun, aren't you? Fuck you. you. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that was precisely what the Rebel Route did. It was this little A4 bulletin. Um, that it, it worked as a paper bulletin because workers would meet in these centres and you could have a 30-second interaction where you just put this thing in someone's hand and they go away. And it was basically like kind of a newslettery leaflet thing where we'd talk about how pissed off we were, what conditions were like in different places. So like in some of the early issues, you could compare what conditions were like in the UK where uh, on a Sunday there were no guaranteed wages with conditions in Marseille, where in Marseille you were getting 15 euros an hour on a Sunday, even if there weren't enough deliveries because they just needed more workers, right? So then you can compare that and go, well, if you can afford that in Marseille, you can afford that here, right? And we're doing this kind of collective comparison. Whenever, So there were initial strikes breaking out in 2016 in uh, London, and we were kind of discussing how those had happened. And the line of the, basically the line of the Rebel Rue was like, fuck you. It was very angry. And it attempted basically to reflect some of the discussions we were having at zone centers where workers were really pissed off. And so I've been distributing this. It came out in November and we've been distributing it for a couple of months and having conversations and people were getting progressively more angry. They were understanding that they were getting really fucked over intuitively um, and also understanding that they could potentially do something about it. Because the thing with Deliveroo is that if you all stop doing deliveries, the food just piles up. Like the workers actually have huge amounts of strategic leverage because it's a very short timescale. You've got to do these deliveries very quickly. And you're working with loads of kitchens where, you know, if they produce the food and it's gone cold, they'll bin the food, right? And then delivery has to pay them to then remake the order, right? So you have a potentially huge amount of leverage if you just stop the whole delivery process, especially during one of those like dinner peak times. And because you aren't formally an employee, you don't have any requirement to like strike ballot. You know, I mean, people might think back to the CWU, Communication Workers Union, where they recently smashed a strike ballot at Royal Mail and then got told by the courts they couldn't go on strike because they'd all posted their ballot papers together, right? You don't have to go through any of that bullshit. You don't have to deal with the fact that we have some of the most draconian trade union laws in the Western world. Like, you don't have to deal with that because you're not an employee, right? So you can do whatever the fuck you want. So this gave us a huge amount of freedom in a way that, like, we, 
every strike had to be a wildcat strike. It couldn't be like officially sanctioned and organized. So we could just strike back whenever we wanted. We could just punch him in the face and give him a bloody nose. And that basically, like, I'd been organizing for a while. I was having these conversations. Things were developing. And so in January uh, 2017, we had a meeting uh, in Brighton where basically we got a person from the IWGB to come down, uh, the Independent Workers of Great Britain, small trade union, which at the time had the most experience in organizing with delivery workers. Um, and basically we were like, look, can we just form a branch? And they were like, yeah, sure, fine. Like they were a London union previously, but it worked out that, that there were about 20 of us that could join it. Um, so we set, set that up. And then I had done organizing in the past. So I'd done student organizing or, you know, um, I I'd, I'd tried to build movements before. And in my understanding, it was better to take this kind of like slow and steady approach and slowly build your base rather than rush into things. Because if you rushed into things, you could cock them up very, very easily. Um, And so we had a chat where we're like, yeah, we're going to build really slow. And we're going to maybe like in a couple of months time when we've we've had loads of conversations and recruited loads of riders, maybe people will be ready to not wear the uniform. And our our mode of protest will be just denying them the free advertising of the uniform. Right. and then we, we went out of this meeting and we all felt very proud of ourselves and like, oh, this is great. You know, we've got so much to do and we've got a really good plan for how we're going to do it. In fact, what happened straight away was a load of Brazilian migrant workers who are in a, a WhatsApp group called the Brazilla Ruse um, had basically heard that there was now a syndicato and they're like, ah, I know what that means. Okay, we're going on strike next week. <laughs> and, and they literally, they, they started sending messages saying, we're going on strike, yes. And we we're like, okay, fine, okay, fine, great. And the, the entire union branch, yes. which was at the time a week old, had to respond to the fact that the workers themselves were like, nah, fuck it, we're going on strike straight away. And this kind of militancy really does emerge in this sector over and over again. And like across a whole range of diverse contexts. I mean, the cities in the UK where these strikes have taken place is remarkable. You're talking down to like small market towns in Sussex have had strikes um, led by, led by uh, food platform workers. And basically, yeah, they, they took on the organising and all the informal work groups, all the WhatsApp chats we were talking about earlier, just turned straight into like strike mobilising groups. And so a huge number of people met in the centre of town. They met in Jubilee Square which is exactly, obviously, you know, the zone centre, that kind of symbolic place where we were all waiting with no money. That was where we met um, on the strike day. Um, And then kind of toured around in these huge, they're almost like flying pickets, like huge convoys, which are just insanely fun. Um, If you ever see one of these happening near you or you hear about a delivery strike that's going to take place, get a bike and go because they're incredible. You just have like huge convoys of people who have felt atomized, who have felt powerless, who have felt completely on their own who collectively come together and realise, you know, there are hundreds of them in the city. They can dominate the streets. Um, and that was really the start of the process of um, how the strikes and struggles went in Brighton. We won some small victories. We lost other things. It was a very, you know, a mixed process. It was a struggle, you know, um, losses and victories. We won a hiring freeze, which meant that basically they weren't going to bring in any more workers, which meant there'd be more deliveries per worker for the people who were already working. Now, that pushed up wages a bit. But also there were a series of problems where, um, basically, the algorithm started favoring mopeds over cyclists, or appeared to be favoring mopeds over cyclists. And is that would that be? And I, I notice you say here, you know, uh, this is from your book uh, that these strikes kicked off a, a response to ongoing relentless attempts to force down wages. Um, uh, and and uh, Alex Marshall, chair of the uh, IWGB CLB, uh, the union couriers and logistics branch of the Inter- Independent Workers of Great Britain describes the summer as a period which bosses rained hammer blow after hammer blow down to the workforce. So um, you, you mentioned, yes, Deliveroo did uh, altered its vehicle priority system to essentially lay off large numbers of cyclists and minimum fees continued to be cut uh, with some orders paying as little as 221. Yeah. So with, with the victories you win, the bosses 
are are able to sort of still manage to try and get and um try and get sort of maneuver maneuver it so that they still win. Yeah. But you say also each time a strike kicks off, the union gains more traction. So like the um the and and the, un- the unions membership grows and therefore the ability of the bosses to undo gains by strike action becomes lessened. Yeah, I mean it's a really it's a fascinating process because you're not uh, fighting over a negotiated contract. Um there are these constantly like the boundaries constantly shifting and the turnover is so high in these jobs because you know many workers in Britain that the the form of resistance they really understand is quitting, right? Like so many jobs in the UK rather than fight collectively Workers have no faith in that kind of way of organizing, so they will just quit the job and move on, right? Like that's, you know, you go to a call center or something, the vast, the most common form of resistance is just, fuck you, I'm off, right? Um, so the, the workforce is constantly rotating, um, people who are living quite unstable lives or whatever. And basically, like, the struggle is always in this intermediate situation where, because there's no negotiated contract, because there's no formal negotiations between the union and the company, because Deliveroo refused to recognize that the IWGB represents anyone. Um, you never got the formal outcome of a strike. So they'd never say, oh, we're going to increase wage rates uh, for two months in X city, but wage rates would go up and you kind of had to do the reverse um, processing to say, okay, that's because there was a strike or whatever. But it's very intangible. You're constantly like trying to figure out what's actually going on on the, you know, where are we winning? Where are we losing? What's changing? Mm -hmm. But because it's a black box system, a lot of this stuff is really, really intangible. And so it's very hard to say really what we know concretely is that these strikes are spreading. Um, so like they became much more intense over a period of time and then they spread transnationally and became more coordinated transnationally. We appear to be in a bit of a lull now where basically like they're not as, as common as they were during the period when I was writing the book. But there, is, there was this big strike wave that spread transnationally that connected people who work for these platforms regardless of what country they're in over a common issue of exploitation that led to the development of like new methods of organizing, new strategies, new tactics amongst the workforce and that was highly successful in some ways in forcing local concessions. But it's very difficult to know, you know, in the long term, what does that mean? You're not negotiating a new contract. You're mm. not setting new standards in the industry. So it is this kind of um, hit and run class war rather than, you know, trench warfare stuff. Yeah, because I, I think one of the things that we have to confront as, as a, a modern left is that the trade union as we know it is a fundamentally Fordist Keynesian body. It, because you are able to, as, as a union, um, you are able to understand that you have strategic leverage because the, the owner of whatever you're the union working on ha- is limited by the fact that he has this factory and uh, there's the car making machine or whatever. And the car making machine is here in this place and he needs particular people to come and pull the lever to make the cars. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot, a lot of strike organizing um, seems to be able to take advantage of that fact that um, the, there is, it's not like there isn't a black box that exists on Amazon web servers that is the main property of the company. It would be, you know, a, a bunch of car making machines. Yeah. Whereas with the black box that exists on Amazon web servers, the, um, the, the sort of fluidity and flexibility of the conditions of labor means that it's much, the, what it, it's, it, it's very different to, to withhold labor. Yeah. from a black box as it is from a supervisor and a machine. And the question that is, lingers in my mind and some of the minds of some of my co-hosts on the podcast as well is do we have to reinvent unions as much as we have reinvented, as much as the bosses have reinvented the economy? Because Lord knows Unite isn't doing much. So this is a difficult question. 
and I think one that we need to think through collectively and I certainly don't have like a quick answer. Damn it. <laughs> sorry. Fuck, I'm sorry to, I'm sorry to everybody listening. <laughs> I promised that Callum was going to have a quick and easy answer to the existential question of the modern left. Whoopsie doodle. So I think there are a few things that's important to note. The first is like the absolute depth um, to which uh, the workers movement in the UK has fallen. Like the, the levels of strike activity we're currently seeing are lower than those that we saw in 1893, right? Like if you, there's never been a period where workers in the UK have gone on strike less than they do currently. Um, and that's given the increase in the size of the working population as well, right? Like it's, it's a profound crisis we're experiencing where we have the trade union membership getting older, shop stewards getting older. There is this real, real problem where workplace representatives are not linked to the young parts of their economy. Most young workers, especially if they're working in the private sector, will never have had a union job. And like if you're setting up a new company, the chances of it getting unionized are almost nada. Right? Like if your workplace was organized in the 1970s, it's called like in the academic language, we call it a brownfield site, right? If it's been pre, if it's been organized before, then actually if it's still open now, it's probably still organized, right? Union density in the UK peaks in 1979. If your workplace was organized then, it's probably still organized today. The problem is that all these new industries opening up where there has never been any unionization. So for instance, call centers, like despite the valiant efforts of some, some unions at some time, particularly in the 90s, Call centres have never been systematically organised in this country. Any industry that has basically emerged since the neoliberal term has never properly been organised. Mm. And this has led to a huge collapse in density. Well, that's because a, neolib- a neoliberal boss is not, the owner of, um, is not the owner of much physical capital at all. Mm. It's not really much. Because, because, like not, because you're much, much of the, relation, much of the, the neoliberalisation of the economy, as far as I understand it, uh, um, has, has been the as they've been making more things contingent on profit. So that is to say, um, the relationship between the, the, employee or the employer and the employee is now much more contingent on the profitability of that relationship for the employer. The employer's relationship with the physical capital with which manufacturing is done is now based on a, on a network of contracts around the world rather than, say, something a centralized bunch of machines in a factory. Yeah. So, because- so you have the emergence of like Comprador Capital, right? Where like Comprador Capital works basically. So like if you're Nike, Nike doesn't really own any shoe factories. Yeah. Um, all Nike owns is intellectual property. In fact, the shoe manufacturing companies are this specific layer that operates often in the global south to do like this very specific purpose. Yeah. And the relations between, so then, you know, you don't have a large workforce of Nike workers who have the fixed capital of a Nike factory in their hands that they can shut down. Yeah. I think so are- that's why I would imagine that from the 90s, when we after we were be, we be with the global glo- growth of free trade, what what could what could a union do when a union's power is mostly sort of bound in space and time? Mm. So there's I mean there's a guy called Kim Moody who wrote a book which is fantastic and I recommend people read um, on new terrain uh, about the U.S. Uh, economy and the, the prospects for the labor movement um, that arise out of that. Um, and I think that it, we've got to be careful not to immediately say everything has changed, but then also, you know, the relations of capitalist production are still the same. There is still a lot of fixed capital in the UK. A lot of workplaces are very capital intensive. There are the material conditions, like delivery proves it, where in the new economy, in platform capitalism, we can organise the working class. But the problem is that we still haven't necessarily worked out the form. We haven't worked out the political form that fits this technical composition. And I think for me, there's potentially a way of reframing this question, which is useful which is not to think about trade unionism per se, right? Like, I'm not interested in trade unions as institutions necessarily, right? I'm interested in working class self-organisation. I'm interested in workers being collectively organised as a class to fight 
the owning class, the bourgeoisie, and to conduct a political struggle for socialism, right? If a group of institutions called the trade unions become part of that movement, then I'm happy for that. You know, that is obviously important. But actually reproducing trade unions or a specific form of trade union activity is not important. Indeed. So if, you know, the trade unions pre-existed Marx, they pre-existed Marxism, um, and they've always been a form that isn't of the socialist left, right? They've always been a form that's basically like we've co-opted at times, we've used in different ways, we've interacted with, but they've never been the the be-all of the workers' movement, right? And I think we have to think about ourselves now as we've got this task where in very time-pressed circumstances, facing a lot of adverse factors, we have to try and rebuild a working-class movement that is organised in the workplace and community. And primarily, that means us operating as like a militant minority and organising the people around us and going to strategic workplaces and organising there. Now, that can link in with the initiatives of trade unions, but I'm not interested necessarily in building unison to three million members. Mm. Like That, for me, is not an end in and of itself. The end is class struggle. And how you get there and how you use different forms, I'm quite open to. So many delivery strikes have occurred without necessarily any particular trade union presence, because actually the workers already have these WhatsApp groups, which are basically the infrastructure they need to organise strikes. So often they don't even interact with trade unions. There were all sorts of strikes have gone on across, uh, particularly in places like London. You have like, like a local strike where all the Uber Eats workers at one particular McDonald's will go on strike. And they will not tell anyone about it. They won't communicate that this was a strike. The unions may not even know it's happened, mm-hmm. right? But this kind of wildcat action is occurring in places where there isn't formalised organisation. I think that, that we shouldn't necessarily view that as brilliant because, you know, formalised organisation is important if we want to have, you know, a strategy. And also if we want to have political conversations with people where we convince them, you going on strike in your uh, McDonald's is actually not only about Uber Eats being shit, it's about the entire structure of this society being shit. That's a very important, you know, trade unions bring people together in a way that you can convince them over time and we shouldn't neglect that. But for me, the priority is how do we get to higher levels of struggle? And I think reframing the question like that so that we, we don't care about whether these large bureaucracies reproduce themselves or not, we only care about if we can cooperate with them in a process of class struggle, that makes it a little bit easier mm. to approach, I think. I think I'm I, absolutely right. That is uh, one of the key things I was hoping to get out of this conversation uh, when I say earlier that we have to, I think the left has to look at this book and learn the lesson in it. That's the particular lesson that we have to learn, which is that working class self-organization is the is the end point. Nostalgia for the forms of working class organization that may have worked in the 19th last uh, is not going to get us anywhere. We need to understand what worked about them. We need to understand what's different about now. Mm. We need to be able. We need to focus on that goal. And this is now where I want to draw us back to uh, the Labour Party as well. I believe, I've said this in our post-election episode, and I'll say it again here, that the, re- the way I believe first past the post fucks the Labour Party is by keeping it in existence. Mm. It means that this thing, this Keynesian social democracy vehicle that is hopelessly wired into the bureaucracies of the large old legacy unions is uniquely unable in its current form to capitalize on energy like you talk about in this book. Um, I, I believe that it is fundamentally nostalgic and backward-looking, and that rather than being forward-looking like Blair would say and just accept that capitalism won, it's not, it, it needs to be forward-looking in a way that you talk about, which is accept that capitalism has changed and that we as a workers' party must also change. Yeah. And um, this is where we get into another phrase of yours that I really like, which is, the problem of what you call reverse Jenga, uh, which I know I've, I've mentioned to you a few times, but it's because I think it quite neatly encapsulates um, the issue. Um, 
where class politics is not a set of specific messages you've written. It is instead a methodology. If you advance socialist politics without the base required to implement it, people see through your claims. This is why class power is not an external problem to be confronted at the point of implementation. It's at the core of the question of messaging, at the core of the question of electoral strategy. Labor's failure to demonstrate that it could mobilize working class power is precisely why we failed to convince people of the manifesto. And I believe it is because the Labor Party has fundamental A, the Labor Party has tried to basically what rebuild the worker class movement um, from uh, over the course of a couple of years while only engaging with unions that are at best, well, not all of the w- unions the Labor Party engages with are vestigial, but many of the big ones are basically vestigial mm. um, without dealing with the real struggles that people work with in their actual lives in a way that you talk about here. Yeah. So I think the notion of re- reverse Jenga, um, as a phrase, I'm trying to capture this idea that basically like we kind of by accident in 2015 took control of the leadership of the Labour Party, very much like the ball just got fumbled and it, it ended up with us, right? We took control of the leadership of the Labour Party and then we progressively took control of other bits of the party. But actually that leadership, the, the, those of us who are in the Labour Party, were out way ahead. Like we are way isolated from where the level of class struggle was. So we've tried to advance a socialist um, electoral project, uh, which is, you know, was obviously going to face immense contradictions and problems should it ever have ended up in government or should it ever end up in government in the future. But that kind of, we were just way out on a limb and we were to- like teetering at the top and we had to rebuild the base retrospectively where we needed to go back and organize people in the workplace and community so that actually when Labour said, we're going to, you know, force the rich to pay their tax and someone goes oh yeah how are you going to do that we could say well look at this large movement which is organized and you know the people who run the local food bank yeah they're part of this movement you know the people who have organized with you when you were getting fucked over by your landlord yeah they're part of this movement we needed to have a a genuine social base a genuine social movement of millions in order to convince people of the the, even the feasibility of a transformational strategy in a confrontation like a government that was going to confront capital right and we weren't able to do this, you know, I called it Corbynism from below alongside some other people. And we wrote some stuff about this where we were like, guys, we've got to really, really organize. And at the time I said, we've got to really, really organize because if we win, we're going to face a huge onslaught. I think in retrospect, you read this quite out a bit earlier, but in retrospect, we actually needed to organize a social base. We needed to kind of win that game of reverse Jenga to even win electorally in the first place. Mm. Like we can only convince people of our program if they can see that we are a living, breathing movement, which can fight and win. Because people don't yeah. go into fights they think they're going to lose. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it's just, if they think you've got no hope, they won't go into a fight with you. And we're trying to convince people, often in very difficult circumstances, who are already living hand to mouth, who are already, you know, struggling to make ends meet, who are already really like feeling the boot of neoliberalism stamping in their fucking face. You should have a fight with this entire system and we're on your side. But people don't just jump into that if they think they're going to get smashed. Uh, so really rebuilding that movement, I think, is the, the failed task of the last four years. And, you know, we didn't collectively manage to rebuild that base. And that's really bitten us in the arse now. But given that's where we are, we have to now think about how we do it going forward. And, you know, this book is an attempt to make a contribution to say, well, how do we do that in new workplaces? How do we do that in these greenfield sites? How do we build? The British working class has the most incredible history, right, of, you know, shop stewards movements, um, where, you know, just all over the British economy, people used to have the power to blow a whistle, walk out and shut down factories, right? How do we rebuild that literal power so that people in their everyday lives don't just experience getting fucked over and fucked over and fucked over, but actually experience fighting back and winning? And like, how do we convince them they're not isolated and are part of a bigger project? 
Now, for us going forward, we've got to build that movement. I still think, you know, my strategy hasn't really changed in the sense of we've, again, we've got to play reverse Jenga. If Becky Long Bailey wins or, you know, then we've got to think, how do we actually build a movement that can seriously actually take on capital? But then also independently of the Labour Party, in a way, we need to start thinking, I think, seriously and honestly about strategy because everyone remembers that 12-year report, right? Everyone thinks about that all the time. Now, you factor in the fact a couple of years have passed, you factor in we've got five years of Tory government baked in, you're talking five years, right? If we were to win an election in five years' time, we'd have five years to completely transform the British economy. Like that is a revolutionary project. If the, you thought the Green Industrial Revolution was revolutionary, imagine what we're going to have to talk about when shit has really hit the fucking fan. And we also potentially have to confront the fact that electoral timelines and scientific timelines no longer match up. So it may well be that waiting for the next election is not a viable strategy. And that I, to be honest, I am increasingly less and less convinced that we can wait for anything. We need to right now be organizing in a sense that, you know, actually taking on capital and taking on this entire system can't be delayed to a notional future strategic Mm -hmm. point. We have to be building the forces to do it right now. Because otherwise, you know, we face a, a problem which historically socialist communists have never faced before, which is that the world we want a world of material abundance which is shared by you know people living in freely associating might actually not exist like the material abundance on which our whole you know utopia is based could disappear with climate change and with climate collapse and we can actually be living in a society where we say you know there is no abundance to be shared and we're just trying to collectively get by right and that collapse of the dream is something that we now have to face seriously because like it's just rational that that is now a possibility and I guess, I mean, this is a bit black pill, <laughs> but... Hey, I, season, Trash Future Season 2, welcome to the black pill, baby. Yeah, no, 2020 is definitely my black pill year. <laughs> but we have to fight now. There's no, there's no time to delay. There's no time to wait. There's no time for a future electoral strategy. So when we're building these, you know, working class organizations, and, you know, if we do it inside or outside the Labour Party, I don't really care. We're not, like, thinking, um, you know, we're doing this for the next electoral strategy. We missed that boat. We missed it. Like we missed the idea of, you know, the community organizing unit doing the work that meant that we were going to win this election and have time to do things. We missed that boat. Then now a victorious strategy for the left has to be more confrontational. It has to be more based on struggle, more based on open confrontation. We have to be taking lessons from France, not, you know, mm. not lessons from, you know, the potential for winning an election. How could we have won 2019 again? Because in 2019, the campaign, we, we fought 2017 Mark II, right? When we get to whatever it is, 2024, we cannot fight 2019 Mark II, right? We have to fight 2024 and we have to realistically build a strategy on that basis. And as far as I'm concerned, the journey to make bosses afraid of that whistleblow again, yeah, yeah. it starts in the Jubilee squares up and down this country as workers who might not have thought of themselves as working class, who might not be aware of the concept of class, become more aware that they have more in common with the cyclist or the moped rider or the programmer or the moped rider cyclist program in another country or the, the restaurant worker that they're picking up the order from, that all of these people have a common interest in not dying in eight years <laughs> because the people that own enough of it are going to make sure that they don't and they don't care if you do. And, you know, I think there's a, so there's two things here. The first is, 
like you say, they're going to try and leave us behind. If we do really get into this climate desperation scenario, I, I want to build a coalition for nuking their, uh, you know, Elon Musk as he tries to escape on his, his space <laughs> shuttle. You're going down. Yeah, we're, you're, we're coming going with down, us. you're coming with us, you, you know, to, emerald mining fucker. <laughs> towards interplanetary death. Epic is the only bacon <laughs> this, you bitch. <laughs> Epic bacon, you're frying spaceship. Uh, so we need to build a coalition for that. But then also I want to impress on people that like this is not um, something to be left to other people. Like, Actually, you know, there is no one we can trust but ourselves in this. And the listeners to this podcast, you know, you are the people in the workplaces, in the communities, you're the renters, the workers, the people who have to build this movement. And, you know, historically, how have large trade union revitalizations, how have working class movement revitalizations occurred? Not because someone came in and saved us on, you know, Gandalf isn't coming over the hill, right? What we need to do is- no, I'm pretty sure Hillary's going to win in the next election <laughs> in America. It's going to be cool. But we need to do this ourselves. We need to be the militant minority in the workplace, which is convincing people of the necessity to stand up and actually fight back. And whether that be in climate movements, whether that be in renters unions, whether that be in workplace unions, we need to be developing that organisation. And that agency is in the hands of all of us. It's not to be delayed to someone else. No one is taking care of this for you. It is up to you, right? You heard it here first. Join a union, make it a good one. Go on strike early, go on strike often. So I think I'm going to have to stop us there because we're about out of time. But Callum, A, thank you so much for coming into the studio today. This is exactly the conversation I wanted to have out of, out of this book. This is exactly what I thought this book had to say. This is exactly why I want you, the listener, to please read this book. Um, and we'll include, uh, we'll include the link to get it from the publisher site in the description, but get it however you need to. I'm sure it's in uh, any fine radical bookstore uh, that might be nearby. Um, there are more of them being opened up, which is good. Uh, in the meantime, go on strike early. Go on strike often. So thank you for listening to this, the December edition of Riley's Comic Book Club. Late.